4: And I am one of your co-hosts, Matt Tebby, joined by my friend and compadre in podcasting tomfoolery, Christy.
3: (laughs) Yes, that's me. That's you. All Um, those things you said.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Christy, uh, for for the listener that doesn't know, Christy spends a lot of time uh, pastoring.
3: I do. What's your official
4: role at your church, Christy?
3: Yeah, I'm the family and student pastor, and um, I love it. I really love my job. Like yeah. someone asked me yesterday, if you had all the money and all the time, what would you do? And like outside of like maybe buying a ranch that has like a river by it for my husband and oh man, putting a hot tub there because I really want a hot tub. <laughs> outside of those two things, I would do what I'm doing. Like I mm. just, you know, for free where I wouldn't have to get paid if I didn't need money. But um, yeah, that's really good.
4: That's a great so. place to be.
3: Hmm.
4: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wish that. I mean, I, I wish that upon my kids. You know that they would grow up and find a way to do something that they enjoy. Yeah. That they would do if money wasn't an issue, but money is, and they get paid to do it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know,
4: that seems like a pretty good life. Um, speaking of ranches and rivers and hot tubs, you know, <laughs> if you were able to do that, uh, my wife would join you in that hot tub. Come That's on. like her. That is her thing.
3: That is all I want. Like right now is like every birthday, Christmas. I'm trying to get all the kids to get like we don't need Christmas presents. Let's just get a hot tub, y'all. And um, I have almost all of them, but I do have like an 11 year old who really likes gifts. So
4: <laughs> mm. I don't
3: know if he'll buy into that for Christmas, but it's okay. Speaking
4: speaking of your kids, before we jump in here, um, I will you tell the little story about London and his oh my little goodness. lizard.
3: Yes, we found a lizard in the in the floor of the student center at my church. And um, I I like saw it and like, oh my gosh, look at that. And so he caught it. And we put it in a little cage with some grass and sticks. And I got like crickets and mealworms and all the things to keep this little lizard alive. But I walked into the living room, y'all, and he is reading books to the lizard. (laughs) Out loud, such and a it's sweet. so cute and so yeah. We have a new pet lizard in the Penley home.
4: Hmm. He's so. he's such a precious little boy.
3: He is. He's so cute. <laughs>
4: um, well, let's uh, let's talk about our interview today. We're talking with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, um, and she's written a number of books. She's, uh, but we talked to her about a little bit about how what we can learn from a Jewish reading and handling of the scriptures. Christy, you weren't on this I, No,
3: I was on this. I thought at first I wasn't, but I was oh. on this one. And oh. um, it was fascinating because, well, first yeah. of all, because just talking to a rabbi and her perspective, um, it just, I learned a lot and yeah. it made me go, I need more rabbis in my life.
4: <laughs> yes. You know, I also, when I talk to people, like just yesterday, I was having a conversation um, with somebody at our church and the the crux of their issue was I don't know if I know how to read scripture anymore. Like I mm-hmm. used to know how to read scripture, but now I realize like the way I read scripture is the same way that I, like a flat earther reads scripture. <laughs> like, And I don't, I don't believe in a flat earth, uh, you know, or a literal yeah. six days. Like, and so they're, they're kind of going through this crisis. And what I remember from this interview um, is that uh, Rabbi Ruttenberg helps us learn and appreciate how we can recover as Christians a Jewish way of reading Scripture, right? Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, I I'm excited. Let's just let's just get into this, huh? Okay, let's do it. We'll just hit play. All right, listen up. <laughs> Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. She's an award-winning author and writer who serves as scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's a recipient of Auburn Seminary's Lives of Commitment Award and was named by Newsweek as a rabbi to watch and a faith leader to watch by both the Center for American Progress and Religion News Service, and has been a Washington Post Sunday crossword clue. She was 83 down, in case you were wanting to know the author of several books she has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Time, and other publications. Her latest book is entitled On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Rabbi Danya, thanks for joining us today
1: on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Well, let's share a bit. Um, uh, I would love to hear a bit about your spiritual journey as a Jewish person, how you became a rabbi, And how your faith has grown, matured, changed in the process of that. I know that's a uh, four-part series question, (laughs) but maybe um, maybe some highlights as we are going to talk today about scriptures and what we can learn.
1: I I mean, you know, uh, it's such a long question for me that, uh, or it's such a long answer for me that I I had to write a whole memoir on it. Um, (laughs) This is a
4: softball for you to pitch your memoir. That's what I was doing.
1: I grew up in a Fairly typical American suburban Jewish family. You know, we went to synagogue a couple times a year. I had a bat mitzvah, Passover Seder, that kind of thing. Um, And I was 13 when I realized that I was so smart and so sophisticated. And obviously Marx was right about opiates and decided (laughs) I was an atheist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And obviously. Yeah, the and,
4: 13-year-old atheist phase. I think we've had that, yes.
1: Uh, so. Yeah. And, you know, and it lasted. And um, I got to college thinking I was going to study philosophy and accidentally studied, stumbled, uh, accidentally stumbled into the religious studies department. Mm. <laughs> sort of backwards. Mm-hmm. It was literature. It was philosophy. It was uh, anthropology. It was History, it was language, it was all of these sort of fascinating things jumbled together. Plus, I got to say, like, this is what people believe and this is what really happened. And, you know, it sort of added to my insufferability. Um, <laughs> and then I had cause to find myself back in synagogue towards the end of college and to... My great surprise after having read all of those books about ritual theory, I opened up the prayer book and was kind of like, oh, oh. <laughs> I can see what's going on in here now. That's fascinating. Hmm. And at the same time, I started having – I was grieving. My mother had died. Hmm. And um, I started having – I was open. I mean, I had been blasted open and I started having – what I would eventually describe as mystical experiences. But at the time, just I was walking around at night talking to the moon and things were getting blurry sometimes and I didn't have language for it. And I went looking for language. And eventually, and I'm condensing several Mm -hmm. years into a sentence or two, I started to figure out that... Um, 2,000 years of nuanced theology didn't necessarily all assume that God was a man in the sky with a beard and anger management issues. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there was something more complicated going on, um, which was absolutely news to me. Um, So when I graduated college, I decided that maybe I didn't hate synagogue enough I'd want to know where I'd go, just in case. Mm-hmm. And I had the sort of, this is the late 90s. I moved to San Francisco because I could. And this, is, this is before they ruined San Francisco. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was nice then. Mm-hmm. And I did the sort of synagogue shopping, shul shopping, we call it. And had, you know, it's like the Goldilocks, except with non-consensual hugging, you know. <laughs> it's like, don't, no, <laughs> not it, not it. And, um... <laughs> The Bay Area, bless them. (laughs) And sort of accidentally, again, sort of stumbled into this place that was one of the last on my list, sat down, the services felt right, and then the rabbi opened his mouth. And I was like, oh. (laughs) You know, there are times when you realize that you have found your teacher and... Uh, this was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Rabbi Alan Liu. May his memory be for a blessing. And he was the first person to show me ser- first sermon after sermon. And then, I, you know, I basically followed him around for five years. You know, I sat meditation with him. I went to Torah study with him. We would sit and talk one-on-one. Um, that the stories of the Torah were uh, really the stories of our own lives and the stories of our own wrestlings with the divine. And this was was the the roadmap to connection, um, Mm -hmm. both on the individual and communal level. And it wasn't... (laughs) About, you know, do this or, you know, and you'll be a good monkey and get a donut or, you know, do that and you'll get coal in your stocking. It was um, was just a a pathway to transformation into the kind of person who can be more of service to the divine and more of service to the world. And I I believe those two are the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... It's his fault, really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know,
3: we have recently finished up a series on trauma and harm and how we can faithfully navigate trauma Mm. in close corners with family and church relationships. And we're doing a series on scripture and how many are renegotiating their relationship to the Bible. And in many ways, your book on repentance and repair is this combo of these two themes. Right. So what
1: prompted this book at this time for you. So in 2017, a thing called Me Too happened. And we all as a culture were together having conversations about harm and suffering and repair. And all of these very famous men came out with these statements, you know, yeah, I did it, and it's really hard on my family. Yeah, I did it, and what about my fans? And, Mm -hmm. you know, basically not at all (laughs) engaging with the people that they had harmed. Mm -hmm. And people were saying things like, well, you know, so how long does Matt Lauer sit in a timeout before we magically just gift him another TV show? Mm -hmm. Um, And in the middle of this, I was asked by a friend to give a quote for uh, a piece they were working on, on the question of like, what is needed? When do we allow these men, like what what do we require of these men in order to re-engage with them in the public way? And in Judaism, the guy on repentance and repair is Maimonides. He's our, he's a 12th century sage philosopher, Torah scholar, and the way that he codified earlier work on repentance and accountability is the sort of the cornerstone of, of our thinking. So I look to Maimonides, I, I see five steps of repair when I look at his laws of repentance. And so I said, you know, I don't know what is in Louis C. Key's I don't know what's in Louis C. heart, but yeah if he were really doing the work, these are some of the symptoms, right? These are some of the the outer signs I would assume would be likely to happen, right? A stepping away from the ego stroking limelight where it's so easy to cause harm, for example, and so on and so forth. And um, I threw the paragraphs on Twitter Also, because, you know, hey, guys, you want
2: this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's my relationship. That was my relationship to Twitter at the time, right? Hey, guys, what about that? And um, including an explanation of the five steps of accountability, transformation, repair. And the response was beyond anything Mm -hmm. I could have imagined Because our culture is so focused on simply imposing forced forgiveness on the harmed party as a way of coming as quickly as possible to resolution so that we can go back to normal. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we would demand accountability of a harm doer and that we would have a pretty high, not impossible, but high bar for what is required before we allow that harm doer to even be part of the conversation again and that who decides is not us, the millions of fans who might want to once again laugh at this person's jokes or whatever, Mm -hmm. but the people who were harmed principally, Mm -hmm. that we are, you know, all of us, the millions of fans, are impacted if... Um, I'm not a Louis C.K. fan. Let us know. Let us, let the record state. But <laughs> millions and millions of people are impacted if someone famous is... Uh, if their behavior is shaping the way we think and talk about rape culture, right? right. So it's not that we're not part of part of the harm in some way, um, but that we're not the ones entitled to give permission. mm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And people's responses, you know, it's such a counterculture idea. And so people's responses were really strong and they started coming back with questions. And then that sort of pushed my thinking some more, which led to an op-ed. And then that had a strong response, which led to radio interviews. And I kept getting more questions. What about this? And this thing that happened in college? And what about this from the news yesterday? And what about this? And so eventually I realized that there was this hole in the public conversation. Mm. And I'm so not a twelve steps to easy magical solutions kind of a person, but I kept realizing that Maimonides framework was maybe not the only, but was one way that we could be having this conversation, one lens that we could use.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that 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 maybe bridges to Uh, maybe a broader question that I'd like to ask because Maimonides um, didn't just invent this like out of his own head, right? Right. Um, Maimonides presumably was reflecting on the scriptures and reflecting on uh, the teaching, uh, the teachings that had been passed down. Um, So I'm wondering if, um, you know, we're we're doing this series on, on the scriptures. um, And I wonder if we can talk about the Jewish interpretation of uh, the scriptures. So I know there's plenty of diversity um, in Jewish theology and interpretation and that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's
1: true. <laughs> I mean, and if you so, know the two Jews, three opinions, uh, you know, 2000 have, years of Jews.
2: I, <laughs> uh, I hadn't heard that one, but that's, uh, I like that. Um, so anyway, I won't, uh, ask you to speak for, uh, 2000 years of Jews, but, um, just speaking for yourself, um, how do you view, like, how would you talk about the inspiration of scripture? How do you view that, uh, that topic in particular? <laughs>
1: I so as I mentioned I was um trained in the academic study of religion before I was religious.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And historical critical methods don't scare me. Mm-hmm. I love scholarship. I love um I love archaeological revelations. I love um putting the the pieces together about what might have been in context and how the larger historical context may have shaped um, what's happening and I think it's okay, right I don't think I don't think my sacred texts are any less sacred because they live in the history of my people hmm. right these are these are our sacred myths and I don't need the world to have been created in seven days uh, you know unless the seven days are a metaphor for however many millions of years the big bang took right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um I don't need I like <sighs> we say turn it and turn it and turn it again for everything is in it, like it, the history is in it, and science is in it, and all of the stuff is in it, and God is in it, and the answer key to our transformation is in it. Um, and you know, how we study Torah is you have one verse literally, there's a, a the it's called the mikrok gadalot, these one verse, and then you have. Rashi from the uh, you know 11th century here you know and then you have Ibn Ezra also on the page and then you have Sforno kind of disagreeing with Ibn Ezra right there on the page and then you have Maimonides and then you have Nachmanides saying Maimonides is totally wrong you know coming a century and a half later like they're all literally on the page arguing with each other we we embrace and own and celebrate the multiplicity of voices and for the origin of Torah to have come from a multiplicity of sources mm-hmm. is, it, you know, organic and part of that. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, I love that you can see, if you look closely <laughs> across both Torah and the other parts of the Hebrew Bible, the arguments about whether or not we're going to build the second temple. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you even see the fights happening. Like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel closer to the text, not further away. Yeah.
0: And now, a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation.
4: Yeah, one of the things, Rabbi, I heard you say is that, you know, going back to this um, how the scriptures are basically our story, sort of. It, it, it's a mirror for us. We get to know who humans are and who the divine is better. The truth that you're demanding or asking the scriptures to provide isn't some sort of Newtonian, uh, you know, scientific evaluation of mm-hmm. how the world began, but rather, what does the world mean? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a different ask of truth from the scriptures, and so then you're able to appreciate the truth that it provides. Am I hearing you right?
1: Correct. I, uh, My brother is a scientist, and there was that moment when he was in grad school, and I was either starting rabbinical school or getting ready for rabbinical school, but I'd gotten religious, and he wasn't sure what that meant because mm-hmm. fundamentalism has taken over the religious conversation in America. And I had to explain to him that I still believed in dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that science and religion are addressing different questions, right? Science is the, the what or the how, and the religion is, you know, why? Or, um, you know, or, or for what? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What's the point? What's the point of this? What? Why are, we, what? Why are we here? Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. I want to return to that comment you made about uh, if you get two Jews together, you have three opinions. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you know you mentioned the di- the dialogue. We can put that nicely uh, mm-hmm. between whether we should build the second temple or not. There's also mm-hmm. this uh, Deuteronomic: Hey, if you're a good person, good things will happen, and if you're an asshat, then things will <laughs> go south. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you have Job. That's like hold my you know, hold my devastation. Right. Uh, and so there's this, there seems to be a greater tolerance, and I would say, go farther and just say an appreciation for there's truth in the disagreement that wouldn't exist without a disagreement that Christians simply haven't, we just don't appreciate. Like, we we don't have a container for that. If we disagree over the meaning of a Greek word, there's three new denominations. Um, <laughs> right? And yeah. so, and so... How do you account for this difference, and what do you think? What gives? What would what would give one access to appreciating divergent, discordant views being held together? What would give someone the ability to appreciate that and do that?
1: There's a phrase in Hebrew that comes, you know, out of early rabbinic Judaism: "Machloket l'shem Shemaim." A disagreement for the sake of heaven, right? That um, the idea is that when we hash it out together, we both get smarter, right? We we can hold the the tension and uh, have the humility that you know. Maybe neither of us have the right answer because these are really really big questions. Um, there are five thousand disagreements in the Talmud, and only fifty of them are resolved on the page where it's totally clear who won the the argument um, and um, you know the reason they, the the in the Talmud, God says there's a, this moment when, like a you know a bat call like a voice from heaven comes down, and God says the reason that we follow the um, the rulings of the House of Hillel and not the House of Shammai because they were two um, two schools that were constantly back and forth disagreeing with each other is like they're both right, right? They're both totally legitimate legal positions to take, but the House of Hillel was modest, and they always cited the House of Shammai's rulings first, right? So it's not actually about who's right. It's about whether or not you're being a mensch, right? Whether you're being a good person to the other one. So I I think it's about having, maybe some of it is having the humility to understand Mm -hmm. that truth is something we find together, Mm -hmm. And, and that it's a group project, and that we all maybe only have a little piece of the puzzle, right?
4: Um, yeah. yeah, and something I just wanna reflect back is I think there's a greater appreciation for being a mensch
1: mm-hmm.
4: uh, in the Jewish tradition than there is in the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition, people care about if you're right, and it sounds like what you're saying is in the Jewish tradition, people care more about being righteous, and, and, and there's something unto rightness that righteousness can, can carry us to.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, in the real world in the Jewish tradition, there are a lot of people who care about being right. I mean, like, <laughs> let, let's be real. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, you know, that there's, uh, we've never assumed that Torah means just one thing. It just, that's again, turn it and turn it. Like it's, it's this, but it's also that. There are four levels of Torah interpretation according to one framework, right? There's the... The plain reading. There's the you know more homiletic reading. There's the Mm -hmm. ethical reading. There's the more spiritualized reading, right? And you could in one verse, in one word, right? They can all be true at the same time. And so somebody says, well, so this is what it means. And somebody else is like, well, I see this other thing. Mm -hmm. It's not oh you're wrong, stupid head. It's ooh that's a cool reading, Mm -hmm. right? And we trust that the Torah is big enough to hold all of that and that yeah. God is big enough to hold all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's the attitude.
2: Which is interestingly sort of similar to a lot of the early church fathers, like the way that like ancient Christians read the text is very, very similar, where there was, there was these layers you know, uh, of interpretation, but somewhere along the way, um, at least in the Christian tradition... At least the one that, <laughs> uh, we're familiar with, like there, there's something happened where it became really important to sort of have one interpretation that was correct, you know, with a capital C. Right.
1: That's but who decides is the problem. Right. Well, right? yeah, exactly. Yes. Where is the, Where does authority lie? And, mm. um, if it, you know, if it isn't with me, then I guess, uh, I'll just go off and start my own new denomination is yes. where you get stuck. Yes. Right.
2: Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. That's it. So,
4: um, well, let's talk about maybe the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, what are, what are some—I know that you, uh, you're you not a Christian, but you uh, Christians are very public in the U.S., right? And very, <laughs> and very loud. And, they, and we also have not done a great job, I think, of being guests uh, in a religion that's not ours, meaning uh, guests of a religion that was started by a Jewish man, you know, uh, in some ways. You could say it that way. Um, what are some of the interpretive moves— or theological frames that you see uh, Christians approach the Hebrew scriptures with that you think are unhelpful or uh, unwarranted? And I, I know you can maybe name a dozen or two. Maybe uh, mm-hmm. maybe your top one or th- maybe your top three. Yes. Okay. Yes, you should.
1: Um, should I do abortion?
4: Go, you know what? Go for it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um Jews do not derive Jewish law from poetic statements in Psalms. Jews do not derive Jewish law from a poetic statement by a prophet that's meant to mean, uh, you know, I've always been meant for this job. Mm -hmm. Jews do derive Jewish law from legal statements. And commandments. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the book of Exodus, in Exodus 21, there's a story where two men are fighting, and one of them knocks over a pregnant woman, and it says if there is an ason, a harm, a disaster, damage... Um, No, if there isn't any other damage besides the miscarriage, then it's monetary damages, right? You only pay monetary damages if there is a miscarriage. However, if there is other asan, if there is other harm, damage, disaster, then it is eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, meaning functionally, um, if she dies, then that death is treated as manslaughter. So the loss of a fetus is not treated as manslaughter. It is treated as, as, as a loss, but as something that requires monetary payment only. And so from this, the Talmud very carefully spells out. So the fetus is not uh, given the same status as a born person um life does not begin at conception
4: you know it's weird rabbi that the people who want to call upon the so-called judeo-christian tradition don't mention this
1: mhm it's really fascinating <laughs> um, interestingly the king james bible translates a son well so there's the translation of a son is a whole thing because it's mistranslated when it was translated into the greek
4: Um, In the Septuagint, is that
1: what? Into the Septuagint, yeah, it got translated. Mm. Asone, harm, damage, disaster, got translated as in the form. So suddenly, you get if there's if there's a miscarriage, but it's not in the form. Oh, Oh, but if there's a miscarriage and it is in the form, so you get Augustine developing insolment based on whether or not it's quickening, based Mm -hmm. on the reading, the mistranslation in the Septuagint. And so the entire Catholic corpus that starts Mm -hmm. to make presumptions about the soul is based on a mistranslation. And the King James Bible, the King James Version, translates a as harm, damage, disaster, as actually a pretty decent word in the 16th century, but to our ears, mischief. <laughs> right, you can't, how do you understand what's going on? If you, right. if you think the, sick, the King James Version is ordained by God, which yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, y- how are you gonna understand what's happening in this passage? Right. Yeah. She died. It's not mischief, right? right? Mischief. <laughs> yeah. um, but f- for Jews, this is the core text that then rabbinic Judaism, and I can do the whole song and dance from there, but in Judaism, abortion is not only permitted, but it's required when the health and safety of the pregnant person is at stake because the, preg- the pregnant person has um, the full status of personhood and the fetus is a potential life. yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah, um, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I've I've heard about that text in Exodus twenty one, and you know I think Christians that are anti abortion have all kinds of ways of handling that. You know they want to argue that the Septuagint isn't a mistranslation; it's an interpretation, uh, and that they're trying they're they're trying to claim it as a rabbinical tradition. There's there's words about the you know that it's not a miscarriage they're describing; it's an injury, those kinds of things. But I think it at least. No, no matter how listeners are hearing this and what they think about it, at least I think it's really helpful Rabbi, for you to name that in Judaism um a large a great many people of Jews have a much different understanding of abortion than christian most Christians do in the us and the west and there aren't people who get rid of scripture to do that but who are are reasoning and arguing from the scriptures to do that.
1: It's not a great many Jews, it's all Jews. The, the Mishnah, which is considered the oral Torah, right? Uh, traditionally, Orthodox Jews uh, consider it to be given by God to Moses at Sinai, okay? It is, it is that weighty, um, talks very explicitly about the necessity of abortion when um, a pregnant person's life is at stake, right? It's, it's a requirement. Maimonides calls it a mitzvah.
4: Hmm.
1: In that case, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from there, it's like, well, if it's required to save a life, then you know, and it's not murder, then it is permitted in these other situations. I also and heard so on and so the point.
3: importance of understanding. Yeah, I appreciate genre that correction. That you, yeah, so, communicate that, right? Yeah, like poetry, you. as opposed to commands, and maybe as. Christians, we need to really make sure that we're understanding and studying and, p- and paying attention to what genre are we reading as we interpret scripture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 That's
4: super helpful. Um, maybe, I don't know if you've uh, done a lot of uh, reading in the New Testament. Uh, but as somebody who is coming to grips personally, and I've been, and mm-hmm. uh, Christy and I have talked about this mm-hmm. a little bit on the podcast, some of the latent ways that we've absorbed uh, anti-Semitism in in reading not only the New Testament, but also the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if um, you could talk a bit about, you know, for instance, Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees and how the word Pharisee uh, gets has been sort of adopted as a pejorative noun to describe people who are legal legalistic non-grace-filled rule followers could you speak a bit to um how this is unhelpful (laughs) and anti-semitic and 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 then i don't know if you have thoughts about how to think about jesus's interactions with the pharisees that maybe could help christians
1: thank you so much for this question um i Kind of been thinking about maybe bringing it up, and now you just handed every, you know all of my my thinkings <laughs> to me on on a plate. Um, yeah, I have thoughts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my friends who are listening, um, Pharisee. When you say use Pharisee as uh, uh, to mean a hypocrite, you it's a slur. It's an anti-Semitic slur. Just like if a kid on the playground says that's so gay. Um, And they mean that sucks. They don't mean it's homosexual. But what you're basically saying is gay equals sucks. It's homophobic, right? right? Um, The Pharisees are the ancestors of rabbinic Judaism. We, the Jews, have survived the Romans destroying our temple because rabbinic Judaism existed. We're rabbinic Jews. Everything that happened since 70 CE is rabbinic Judaism. Okay? Those are our guys. Um, Jewish law is not, you know, how do I explain? We're not mindless little rule followers. Yeah. It is... portable monastery. It is a spiritual practice that enables us to live in connection with the divine in as many aspects of our day as possible. And when we say it matters that you do it this way or that way, it's our way of saying what we do matters hmm. just like for, I know for some people, maybe communion with Oreos and Diet Coke would be fine.
4: <laughs> not Ben though.
0: Nope. Right. Not but, for Ben. Th- not for,
1: some, for some Christians that would not feel right, right because that's not how you do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or I don't know celebrating uh i don't know the celebrating easter uh you like there are ways you could celebrate easter that would be wrong right right? right, because how you do it matters right Right. yes like you know or or how you put up the tree is the right there's a way to do it because it matters Mm -hmm. that's for us you do it in a certain way because that's how you uh click into the holiness Right? Yeah. That's how you make sure you, when you click the webpage, it loads to the page you want. Yeah. Um, and again, as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like the voice came from heaven and was like, both Hillel and Shammai are fine. right? It's not that a thundercloud is going to come zap us if we do it the wrong way. It's just that we make choices with intentionality. Yes. So those are the conversations the Pharisees are having. A. B. Um, this may make some folks uncomfortable, but um, it is, so let me start here. Think about a story that you tell about somebody you really adore the day after it happened. Or think about th- something that happened when you're with somebody you adore. Now think about the story you would tell 15 years later after a bitter breakup when you're really angry at them. The Gospels were written after the Jews and Christians had basically decided to part ways, right? And it was not a nice breakup mm-hmm. on on either side, right? The Jews were were not interested in this new movement. And Paul had made it pretty clear, like, we're going to go... Spread this new great movement, and um, its vote are not going to be part of the deal, right? Everybody broke up, and mm. then the story got told, and so there was a decision to tell the story in a way that distanced Jesus from his people. Mm. And I, when I look at what Jesus is saying and what he is arguing, and who he is arguing with, and what they are saying. It seems clear to me, and we will never know, and some people disagree with me, and some people agree with me, I think that Jesus was a Pharisee from the house of Hillel. It seems pretty obvious. Everything he's arguing is Beit Hillel. Rabbi Akiva also said that the greatest commandment was kamocha, you should love your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus, not Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, everybody was playing what is the greatest commandment game at that point. Ben-Azai said it was, these are the descendants of Adam, a.k.a. we're all descended from the same guy, (laughs) right? They were having, they were, everybody was jamming and having these conversations. Um, But the positions Jesus was taking were also positions that other people from the house of Hillel, that, that, that Beit Hillel was taking. And the things that he is yelling at these terrible Pharisees about, it's completely Beit Shammai positions, and if you look elsewhere in the Talmud and other places, there's a totally things that that the Shammai people are taking, mm. and so, if you read the Gospels and take a, you know assume a little more goodwill, then you know somebody who's maybe a little bit angry with they're telling that part of the story yeah suddenly you see somebody who is hanging out with his friends and they are. Talking smack at each other because this is what you do, you know. Picture your, uh, you know, worst analogy ever. Like I, I don't know. You know, it's like a bunch of friends sitting around being like you know oh yeah yeah well (laughs) you remember that time you you know Mm -hmm. you're a fool because you like they they knew each other they they held different positions they were friends they aided each other's houses you know but they're like you idiot why are you you're totally wrong you suck you but but dumbass you know yeah Yeah. you think yeah you think that you hippie right (laughs) (laughs)
3: We'll be right back.
4: The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12 month cohort based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. This, yeah. g- this connects a little bit, what you were saying, Rabbi, about how there is so, so much greater appreciation and even enjoyment of disagreeing uh, in the Jewish tradition, and even in yeah. the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And we see if we're able to understand that that's a very Jewish thing to be doing, to be disagreeing and even um, even lobbing some sort of shade at each other yeah. uh, while we do it, then it's not as out of the ordinary, I think, to see what you're talking about. I actually, for what it's worth, and it's not much, I actually agree with you. I think Jesus was, this is why he was, you know, if, we, if we're able to hear some kind of, you um, it's not a court report, but if I we were to hear something in in and underneath the bitterness or sadness of the Christians who wrote, I think that Jesus was hard on the Pharisees because he was one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're the hardest on the people you're closest to.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. Like, everybody's talking smack about everybody else. You see, in the, you know, in the Talmud— all the time they're, you know, lobbying insults each- at each other across the Beit Midrash. Uh ah, sharp-toothed one, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> pumpkin head. You know, it's just like... Um, and maybe they were real criticisms, uh, you know, uh, about significant topics. And maybe they were having, you know, those sort of snarky legal debates. And maybe we don't... We will never know. Um, but the fact that there was disagreement any which way is not the level of, of drama that, um, people have to, you know, Oh, well, Jesus was mad at them. It's, Come on. They were Jews. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. it's fine. Yeah.
2: There's go ahead, Ben. I was just going to uh, shift gears. So I don't know if there's more you want to say about that. Matt, no, so. go ahead. Yeah. Um, this is really helpful. Uh, rabbi. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering one of the, one of the other questions that we've asked some of the other people that we've had on um, uh, about um, the scriptures and this series. Um, I'm wondering if you can weigh in on this. Uh, how do you process and understand the parts of the Hebrew scriptures that sort of scandalize the modern reader? Right, so we we read these things and think, okay uh genocide uh that's all you know most people say that's bad uh, but you know here's this text that seems to sort of uh indicate that god is uh, advocating for this or you know that kind of thing so there's texts that endorse harm you know there's texts that erase the abuse of women um and as modern readers you know po- especially post me too uh, as you mm. mentioned earlier we have trouble with these right and so um, so we're, we're we're sort of rightly concerned about an elitist reading that dismisses the text, right? We don't want to just say, well, yeah, these were you know, people who didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but also sometimes we struggle with, to, like, what do we do with them? You know, how, how does, you know, how does God speak and work through texts like these that we really have a hard time, that maybe scandalize us?
1: So... Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was one of the great theologians of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. um, one of the greats. And he said, I think it was Heschel, um, every generation receives the Torah anew. Mm -hmm. And this is part of, again, for us, Torah is not just the words on the page. Mm -hmm. Torah is our living, ongoing conversation with those words. Mm. And so Torah is the verse, plus Rashi, plus Ibn Ezra, plus Forno plus Nachmanides, plus Maimonides, plus Judith Plaskow, right? Yeah. Plus uh, Rabbi Avigal Halpern, who was just ordained in May, right? Plus... Plus, like plus L- Rabbi Elie Kukla, plus, plus 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 plus, right? It's all of it's this is multivocality brings us into now, and so mm. every single time you have somebody who is reading Dina in a new way and saying, now let's read it from her perspective yeah. and her subjecthood, and let us let us find her voice right? And let us let us find all of the ways that she has been harmed and erased and let us now create space for a, a, a more justice-centered region for her, right? Or let us look at the <laughs> commandment to gen- genocide and let us read it through, um, you know, there's a really powerful essay that Name of the indigenous author I'm sadly forgetting off the top of my head, but it's called Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians. Right? Okay. Read it, Read about the the um, colonization of the of the holy Bo- of the promised land through uh, the lens of colonialism. Read mm-hmm. it through the the lens of the occupation of Palestinian uh, land and lives. Right. Um, and read it through a historical context, right? Was it probably written as a, how did we get here? Um, you know, a fictional backstory to what, um, you know, like, did it really happen or was it a a sort of myth-making of how we wound up on this land? Like, that's what scholars think. Mm-hmm. Does that fix it? No. Does it make it all better? No. Does that add another layer that we can hold up and play mm-hmm. with and engage? Absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does do these texts? Do I read this text uh, as a Jew and feel massive sense of obligation? Yes, mm-hmm. you know. Can we can we read those texts without uh, that obligation? I don't think so. Can we read about the about sexual abuse? and not talk about patriarchy then and now? No, right? Yeah. Um, and do, these, do some of these texts open up conversations about white supremacy in ways that were not part of the original right. text? And in what ways do we also, we have to be careful, like I have my whole song and dance about how I think we impose white supremacy in places that it's also not meant to be. Right? I don't think when Miriam was complaining about the Kushite woman, that was actually about the color of her skin, for example. Yeah. Right. But we yeah. read everything through a racist and racialized lens, and so we are assuming, of course, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. Um, and yet, when we read Hagar, wow. how can we not think about the exploitation of... of uh, you know, first of all, the exploitation of of anyone, and but uh, American chattel slavery is just there, and there are all these incredible right. womanist readings of Agar that are important. Yeah. So it's a you know, yeah, all of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. I think maybe to um, something, an image that's coming to my mind, or or a contrast. It feels to me like the instinct that you're naming is to is to not just take the text sort of all by itself. You know, and sort of try to read it from a perspective of just like it's just me and God, and a text. But there's this host of of interpretive voices that have accumulated that are valued and are part of how we read this text today. How could they not be? Right. And that's the thing I think that at least in the Christian tradition that I have been part of, it feels to me like there's a the I don't know if this is the right word, um, but there's almost like like a fetish that people have about getting back to the early days of the church, like getting to the, like the core of the gospel or, you know, um, trying to sort of skip over the centuries of interpretation and thinking that that's going to be a pure reading rather than valuing the centuries of interpretation and taking them in, in into my reading of this text today.
1: I, but, you know, the, the thing that worries me about that kind of attitude is that we're always going to be reading from our own time and place and culture. Mm-hmm. And we can either be cognizant of that. Yes, exactly. Or not.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the problem with it is that you're assuming, yeah, you're assuming that you don't have an interpretive tradition when, you know, you do. Everybody right. does. You have to. Yeah.
1: Right. It's like, I'm going to read from that pure place and forget that all of these readings that I've already had and forget what right. I learned in Sunday school and forget that I live right. at a white supremacist heteropatriarchal culture that right. where I have all these, you know, yeah. biases in my system.
0: Yes. Yeah.
4: <sighs> yeah. Uh, Rabbi Danya, that's really helpful. Uh, thank you for being so generous with your time today. Um, yeah. Maybe as we wind up, wind down, um, there's so much, there's these five steps in this book that you've written about repentance and repair that seems uh, even more important to me in 2023 than it did when uh, what germinated or catalyzed the book in 2017. What, what, um, what is the most difficult step for you um, in your everyday life of those five steps? And and what are you learning about, personally, about repentance and repair?
1: Mm. So the steps are, just as a quick zoom through confession, own the harm that you caused, Name it fully, no hedging. Start to change, because if you do all this repair work, but you keep doing the thing over again, you haven't done anything. So what's the transformation needed? Um, Amends, right? Has to come from the harmed party. Uh, Then apology, all the way down here, because if you started with the apology, you're still basically the harm doer. So we need all of this deep transformation to happen. So that that apology is coming from a different place, and then finally, when um, the opportunity to cause the harm again comes up, you all this deep transformation has already happened. So you're already a different person. Mm. Um, and uh, listen, they're all hard. <laughs> all of the steps are hard if you're going to do it right. It's all they're all hard, but in many ways. Um, the first step is, is, can be very hard because crossing that bridge from the story where I'm the good guy, right? I'm the hero. I never did anything wrong, right? To acknowledging that I, I was not, like, the good guy in somebody else's story today. And I was the harm doer. And I have to reckon with that. The, the, so much emotional work that has to happen to get to the place and then to own it to other people. Like there's so much countercultural work that has to happen to own it fully. Um, and then to be able to do the work, what, you know, what needs to happen hmm. so that you aren't running around doing that again and again um, this is a non-trivial question. And if you mean it, if you are serious, you do not want to be that that harm doer again, then you got to show up. You got to show up in that work.
4: Well, listener, I commend uh, on repentance and repair, making amends in an apologetic world. I think you started, Rabbi, by describing how desperately our world needs uh, people who have some capacity to own what's wrong and their complicity in it and and make restitution make rectification there uh, and what a gift it would be if um, both jews and christians could do that um, thank you for joining us today i uh subscribe to your Substack, and i would be remiss if i didn't give you a chance to plug it because <laughs> it's awesome so would you would you just share you. that a bit
1: I would be delighted. Uh, I have a Substack. It is called Life is a Sacred Text. Substack.com. And it is a kind of lazy run through mostly through Torah texts, but I, you know, go on side journeys to other ancient texts or other things related to spirituality and religion. But it's mostly kind of a justice and sacred text and how transforming the your inner stuff doing the inner work can make you more useful um, in the work for a more complete world mm-hmm. so
4: yeah and um, the latest post or the latest one I read was a 3700 year history the big big <laughs> meta text post history thing which was awesome so go check thank it out thank you
1: 3700 uh, years and 3700 words <laughs>
4: That's awesome. Rabbi, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: You guys, what a good interview. Mm -hmm. Uh, The listeners don't know, but I had some weird complications in the midst of all of that with with like electricity going out and I was sitting in the dark trying to record. (laughs) But well, we, yeah, we made it, we made it, friends. Yeah. We kept watching It was a
2: you. motion sensor or something like that. I was like, it just wave be. your hands, I, Christy.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. at Taylor University and borrowing someone's office, which apparently it's I needed gravity. to learn a little bit more about the office before I sat down. Yeah.
2: Gravity on the road. We're all in the same state. Uh, I know, we get to moment, see each other so soon. That's, got, that's so. fun. We will see each other in person tomorrow. That'll, that'll be great.
4: Um, one of the things I just want to... Oh, go ahead, Christy.
3: But no, I was just gonna say it was fast. It's fascinating. I, th- I think we need more of that. We need to learn from each other, mm-hmm. and as we look at scripture, I think there's something really powerful to say. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you interpret? How do you read? What are the methods that you take? And like, how do we learn from each other? Um, uh, yeah, I think yeah. is really good.
4: Yep, I I agree, and I appreciated so much Rabbi Danya's uh, willingness to talk about anti Semitic. Uh, things that we get wrong in the New Testament I I appreciated her covering that abortion text in Exodus 21 Mm -hmm. you know that's something Mm -hmm. we haven't we we had Mako Nagasawa on a couple years ago to talk about his book about how abortion became such a central uh, topic or policy for Christians but you know it's just something that's so hard it's so hard in white Christian evangelical circles to say anything about um, abortion and I appreciated (laughs) the fact that she doesn't have anxiety about that at all
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it, that that revealed. I mean, she. It seemed like she was sensitive to the fact that others do, because she's like, can, "Can should we talk about this?" Um, but yeah, it is interesting when when you sort of see when you see somebody who comes from a very different cultural milieu mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. anxieties that are absent. It's like, oh, yeah. well, maybe we could just talk about that. But it <clears> is <throat> you're you're right. It's almost impossible to talk about it without people getting very upset or emotional if you don't sort of. I don't know if you say something that isn't the party line or isn't what they've come to come to believe because yeah, there's there's a lot I could say about it, but I
4: I know I made a joke about it. I hope it wasn't irreverent or disrespectful, but there, there is then uh, we have warrant to be, um, to be suspicious of how words like Judeo Christian get thrown around in the public square. Uh, because often i think the differences between jewish jewish people and christian people get elided and obscured for um nefarious reasons right yeah. um and so yeah. then the interpreted tradition that all rabbi said jewish people hold about exodus 21 isn't isn't the predominant interpretation of exodus 21 basically from the late 1970s on in um, white evangelicalism, and and it's there's no no good can come from hiding that, right? And, uh, so let's right. let's be truthful about it, right? And then and then we can ask, I think, good questions about when we when we ev- when we evoke, um, you know, hundreds of millions of people in Judeo Christian, mm-hmm. as Christians, and don't represent them fairly. What what work is that doing in the world? Right. And is it Christian
2: right. work? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. her description of how, yeah, how that word Pharisee is a slur uh, was was really helpful. I think it just brought a lot of pieces together for me um, about how, yeah, it just helps to, to hear, okay, that, that makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah. Um, you know, this is probably another whole podcast, but one of the other things I thought was fascinating was, you know, her talking about how the gospels were written after this kind of bitter breakup. Uh, had happened. And maybe, maybe then that explains some of the sharp, you know, tinge um, that, that is in the gospels towards, you know, the quote unquote Jews. Um, and it, I don't know, it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting thought for me to think, you know, that maybe the anti semitism wasn't necessarily caked over the top of the scriptures, but maybe it's there in the scriptures. Right. Mm -hmm. And what, what does it mean to, there's other things that we will admit that are in the scriptures. Like I think about Paul, right. Getting really, really angry and wishing that people would go castrate themselves. Right. Like, (laughs) like we would never, you know what I mean? We'd never, we'd never say, Oh, that's uh, the the way that we interpret these scriptures as inspired is that um, it is right and good to get that upset and angry with people. That makes sense. Speak but for yourself, yeah, I, ben, I ben. That's found... my life verse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, oh I don't. It felt. I, I don't even know if 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 I have words for this, and so I apologize if I'm confusing our listeners. But um, I don't know. It almost felt freeing to to say, okay, yeah, maybe that's just there, and maybe it's because you know they they were really angry with each other, and you know this was how these scriptures got written. And yet God can speak to us through these things. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, we're gonna have some guests on we can ask about that, right? <clears throat> I think I think uh I think we should, yeah. Um you know if if uh if Paul or whoever wrote Titus can quote um a Greek poet affirmatively that says all Cretans are always liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons right <laughs> then then perhaps we can say that there were some hurty feelings yes yeah. you know what I'm saying like yeah. yeah I think this is another part of maybe some of the work we're trying to do on this podcast, recentering our Christian spirituality on love, is that we've, yeah. we've put ourselves into these, we've backed ourselves into these corners, and then these corners are guarded and gate-kept, and they yeah. really truncate our ability, I think, to reason faithfully and mm-hmm. to live faithfully, morally, as Christians today. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work we're trying to do is, how do we make a, a faith that is livable in the 21st century where we don't have to uh, just ignore the fact that, you know, these things are true.
2: Yeah. What if it's okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what if that's not a threat to our faith? Yeah. Right.
3: Right.
4: Yeah. You guys. All right. Well, well. this is fun. This is already fun.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's always more to learn.
4: Yep. You know, I was uh, reading a story on World War II.
3: Nope. This today. is a joke. I know it. I <laughs> I'm know reading reading it right now. I'm reading story on World I'm War just, II today. I'm and stopping you, you guys, like, for our listeners. Did I ever sake. tell
4: you um <laughs> did I ever tell you that my grandpa uh fought in World War II?
3: He did. He did no, tell me more. <laughs> he was
4: he was in the Navy and was on a boat um <clears throat> on his way to Japan for an invasion, and they they stopped in the middle of the Pacific for two weeks. And the reason they stopped is because they dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then, he landed and was part of the cleanup there. Hmm. Isn't that interesting?
3: <laughs> you know, you just change whatever you're going to say just to make it a story. So that's
4: that it. That I- that's no, it. No, no, no trying not to make that's it a it. joke.
3: That's yeah. it. Okay.
4: Do you know what he did in the Navy?
3: No. no. He was a what dyslexic
4: he- baker. <laughs> <laughs> you could always count on him to go in buns glazing.
3: Wow. <laughs> I tried to stop him, listeners. Yeah, I tried yeah. to.
2: At least our listeners get, did get the warning. if they're. Uh, <laughs> I, anyway.
3: I was so proud of myself. Like, you, no, no, no. no, no, no. And wait, then wait, wait. Sudden, wait. Like, I know what's happening. Wait a minute. What if he's actually telling like a real heart story <laughs> about his grandfather? He's, he starts and crying. I'm like, yeah. I just
2: found this out about my grandpa.
4: I just wanted to say buns glazing, but I do realize if somebody has a learning disability and is dyslexic, and that was offensive, please email me. And I will do my best to make amends in an unapologetic world. Yeah, uh, for causing it. I'm, not and sure, repair. I'm not sure I'm not sure if that is offensive or not, now that I'm thinking about it. So let me know, listener, if it, if it offended you, and I'll yep. uh, make an honest attempt.:
2: he'll do, he'll do the five steps for you. To confess and yes. apologize. I will hold him accountable. And not That'll tell any more job.
4: dyslexic jokes, but I just want, I, yeah. in my defense, I wanted to say bun's glazing.
2: Buns glazing. He <laughs> couldn't find another way into it. But. Right. Oh, I, think, I think it's time for oh, us man. to sign off of this pon- podcast, mm-hmm. Buns Glazing. He went in Buns Glazing. All right. Oh, oh Christy's <laughs> lights went out.
3: Were, the lights went out again. <laughs> that is
2: perfect timing. Christy's lights have gone out, listener. That means it's time for us to sign off. Our uh, listeners, peace, friends. See peace. you next time.
3: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it.
4: Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
2: You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
3: Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you.
4: To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash
2: message. And click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.